that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour. Donald Trump handily winning the Iowa caucus last night was not that much of a surprise. But this, this was. I don't know if you know, but they did polls tonight on the election of 2020. Do you believe it was honest or not? 82% said, 82% said it was not. Now, before we go on any further here, I should clarify that much like the size of his inauguration crowd or his square footage in his New York City apartment, Donald Trump is inflating the numbers again. The real number is 66 percent. NBC News conducted entrance polls of voters as they headed into those Iowa caucus sites. And 66 percent of the caucus goers we polled said that they did not believe Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. Not Trump's fantasy 82 percent. 82 percent is actually the proportion of registered Republican voters across the nation who agree with Donald Trump's language about immigrants poisoning the blood of the country. Maybe Mr. Trump was thinking of that delightful statistic. But still, 66 percent is shockingly high, higher than you might expect after three years of litigating the 2020 election in courts and in Congress after multiple indictments and plea deals that were struck by Trump's co-defendants. But that entrance poll shows that the big lie won't die. And not just in Iowa. On his way to New Hampshire today, Donald Trump made a pit stop in New York City to attend jury selection for the trial that is set to decide what damages Trump owes writer E. Jean Carroll, the woman the court has already found that Trump liable for sexually abusing and defaming. At jury selection today, two potential jurors said something unusual enough that Trump reportedly turned around to see who they were. Those two potential jurors said they believed the 2020 election was stolen. Now, neither of those individuals was ultimately selected for the jury, but that moment unfolded in New York City, in a part of this country that is traditionally understood to be deep, deep blue. And yet there were still election deniers. To anyone with even a passing understanding of what has been happening in our country in the past few years, the big lie is on its face preposterous. But we are seeing over and over again that the big lie endures. It is taking root in the brains of Republican voters across the country, and that makes the big lie a major X factor in the 2024 election. But we also learned about one other X factor in Iowa last night. This one also came from entrance polling conducted by NBC News. 31% of Iowa's Republican caucus goers believe that if Trump is convicted of a crime, he will not be fit to be president. Okay, so I have a lot of follow-up questions to that. Does that sentiment depend on which case Trump is convicted in? Because he's facing quite a few. And how do these two factors interact? Will Trump's bouncing back and forth from the campaign trail to the courtroom solidify his support or tank it? 
Joining me now is Claire McCaskill, former U.S. Senator for the great state of Missouri and the co-host of the MSNBC podcast, How to Win in 2024, and Stuart Stevens, former chief strategist for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign and a senior advisor at the Lincoln Project. Thank you both for being with me this evening. Stuart, let me just first start with you in terms of these numbers um, from Republican voters. If you do not believe that the 2020 election was stolen and you also believe that a criminal conviction would be disqualifying for Donald Trump, what are you still doing in the Republican Party at this point? Well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of people, I think, who are in denial about what the Republican Party has become. Um, I think there's something very interesting about this, because if you uh, take these numbers and you say that Trump's base is those who don't believe that the election, that Joe Biden won a free and fair election, um, that's a, a relatively, I mean, it's incredibly large, but still, if that's Trump's base, you could do the math, but that puts his base somewhere, you know, closer in the low 30s. Um, this was an incredibly low turnout in Iowa last night. Uh, just a little over 100,000 people voted. Um, student body of Texas A&M is 75,000. So I think it's difficult to draw too many conclusions from it, except one thing really stuck out at me, Alex, and that is that Trump did a very good on the ground organizing job. He had a precinct captain in every precinct in Iowa, I've been told. That's really hard to do. There's a whole lot of precincts. And I understand in New Hampshire, he's done a very good job organizing there. And I think that what we're looking at is a, a Trump campaign that's being run by professionals. I know these people. Um, you may not like their candidate, but they are good at what they do. And I think he's going to put together a much more formidable campaign. I, I, I think that, um, Claire, the, 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 the ground game is one piece of it. But Trump himself didn't visit 99 counties like Ron DeSantis did. He didn't talk. He didn't go to the mat on ethanol debates. He's a national figure with a remarkably enduring, you know, grassroots support at the state level. And I wonder when you look at these numbers for him in Iowa, potentially in New Hampshire nationally, is there anything that Joe Biden can or should do to cleave off the 30 percent that Stewart's talking about? Uh, or that I was talking about and the sort of the reality that not everybody in the GOP is for Trump as strongly as perhaps Trump would like to believe or we are led to believe after a moment like Iowa last night. So here's the deal. You know, if you look at Iowa, it was a 50-50 vote. 50 percent voted for what is essentially an incumbent for the Republican Party and 50 percent voted for somebody else. That's not a great night. Uh, 100,000 people showed up. Not a great turnout. This vast enthusiasm that he talks about, nah, I don't know, 50% of 100,000 people. I don't think this is something that the rest of the country should look at and go, oh, my gosh, it's a groundswell. What momentum? Um, I do think that Biden has to take it to him. I think he has to do what David Pluff just said on Chris Hayes' show. He has to say, listen, I know you guys aren't thrilled. You've got two old white men running for president, and a lot of you are not thrilled about either one of us. But look at the choice you have. Look at what is on one side, integrity, uh, normal, stable, 
making, getting results for you. And what's on the other side? Chaos and a litany of lies from sunup to sundown. And those people who have never been with Trump since the insurrection, they know that what he did in the insurrection, the Republicans, they know, and, and many of them are college educated, they know he's lying about what happened in the election. Those are the votes that Joe Biden has to get along with the majority of independent voters that would never be caught near a caucus. So you agree, Claire, that it's about owning the age, the whiteness, the maleness and saying, look, but this is the best you're basically going to get. And, and it's measurably better than what the alternative is. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think Joe Biden needs to be candid and relate. He's so good at relating to people. He really is a normal guy. He really is a guy from a working class background. He's never had a gold gilded toilet in his life. He has never been a guy who's been wealthy until he made money off books and so forth. Um, you know, giving speeches and all of that. Once he left, left the vice president, nothing to do with Hunter Biden, by the way. But he was always one of the least wealthy people in the Senate for decades and decades. This is not a guy. This is a working class guy who understands working class people. And he needs to get at that. He needs to go after all those union rank and file. He needs to make sure to solidify the base. He needs to have a really aggressive campaign. And most importantly, he has to do this. You know what? Joe Biden can deliver a win. And I don't care how well organized the Trump campaign is. You know who's going to beat Donald Trump? Donald Trump. Oh, okay. On that note, Stuart Stevens, the the I want to dig a little bit into the the conviction, the potential conviction, and what that does for Trump support. I I am of two minds. On one hand, it seems like it obviously would be more disqualifying among a certain subset of the electorate, and therefore it is a bad thing for Trump. But it really does appear that the more he sort of rallies and rails against prosecutors the stronger his base of support can be. Is that base of support saturated already? I mean, is there, will those numbers increase? Or do you think it is decidedly a bad thing for Trump to face trial and be seen, you know, in the witness box or in a trial setting in a courtroom through much of the rest of the 2024 campaign? I think it's a really bad thing for Trump. Um, you know, I, I, I'm with the senator. I, I think that the majority of Americans here are going to look at this and find something very unsettling about having a presidential candidate, a former president in the dock. And if he's convicted, I mean, think about it. What, what part of American life do we say that's a good thing? Is that anything teachers say or coaches say or Boy Scout or Girl Scout leaders? Um, he's been able to create this universe that if you believe that the election was stolen, okay, that means that he should be president. And if you believe that, that means that the deep state out there, this mythical thing, the only way they can stop him from returning to what he should rightfully have is put him in jail. Now, that's sort of a unified theory of, of, of the world. It's, it's like, if you know the aliens created the pyramids, a lot of other things make sense. But they didn't. And I think there is a limit to how many people are going to buy into that universe. I personally think that uh, this is going to become a uh, two-person race very quickly. Trump's going to lock it up on Super Tuesday. And I think post-convention, Biden's going to move ahead. And I think Biden's going to win by a much more comfortable margin than he did last time. I do want to ask, though, and I think that that is, I think, the the... the 
the realistic view or the hopefully realistic, optimistic view of the American electorate, Claire. But I still find it shocking, right? If you think about where Donald Trump was two years ago in the aftermath of January 6th, a person whose political future was roundly dismissed or thought to be over, and where he is now, granted, 50 percent of Iowa caucus goers didn't vote for him, but 50 percent of them did. And 65 percent, 66 percent of caucus goers think the 2020 election was stolen. I mean, that is that is shocking. That still remains shocking to me. The endure, the durability of the big lie. Does it surprise you or do you just think that that part of the Republican Party is lost? And listen, this is a this is a guy who never really understood about expanding his base. This is never someone who wanted to unite the country, even people who didn't vote for him. This is always somebody who has played to his base and only to his base. That's one of the reasons he's lost a lot. So here's the deal. I think him getting indicted solidified his base. If you look at his polling, it jumped after he got indicted in New York on paying the porn star, and it kept solidifying as he got more and more charges, his base within the Republican Party. But more than one thing can be true at once. That's a lot different than independent swing borders in suburban areas. It's a lot different than college-educated women who are thinking a lot about what this man did to their freedom. And I really do think Stewart's right. I think he may have this 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 calcified bubble of people who think that, you know, th- this was a big fraud and the government is after him and it's deep state and they're ignoring the facts and the evidence. But most Americans understand that if you're in a courtroom in America, it's about the facts and the evidence and a jury of your peers. I think it will make a big difference for those swing voters. And guess who decides presidential elections? It's not the base of both parties. It's those people who are capable of voting for either party. Yep, you are. That is a point that we should never, ever, ever lose sight of. The 10 voters in swing states, in the handful of swing states in the country who will actually decide the fate of American liberal democracy. Claire McCaskill and Stuart Stevens, thank you both for your wisdom tonight. I appreciate you. Thank you. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including some goodbyes to Republican presidential candidates Asa Hutchinson and Vivek Ramaswamy, and and also maybe sort of goodbye to the man who hasn't yet quite figured out that he is basically out, Ron DeSantis. Plus how Donald Trump's MAGA movement has upended not only Republican politics, but evangelical Christianity itself. We'll have more on that with journalist Tim Alberta coming up next. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Last night at a precinct in Carlisle, Iowa, a caucus goer spoke in support of Donald Trump. She said, I know that he is picked by God for this hour. There are things that he has done in his past, but we all have pasts. Things that he has done in his past, but he is picked by God. Now, in addition to statements like that, there is some compelling data to back up how much white Christians, especially evangelicals, love Trump. Entrance polling from last night shows that 55% of the respondents were white evangelical Christians, and 53% of them voted for Trump. Now, compare that to 2016, when 62% of respondents identified as white evangelicals, but only 21% voted for Donald Trump. In the eight years between those two Iowa caucuses, Donald Trump has not only more than doubled his support from evangelicals, he has also redefined what it means to be one. Author Tim Alberta describes that phenomenon this way. More than any figure in American history, the 45th president transformed evangelical from spiritual signifier into political punchline, exposing the selective morality and ethical inconsistency and rank hypocrisy that had for so long lurked in the subconscious of the movement. To be fair, the slow-motion reputational collapse predated Trump. He did not author the cultural insecurities of this church. But he did identify them and prey upon them in ways that have accelerated the unraveling of institutional Christianity in the United States. Joining me now is Tim Alberta, staff writer at The Atlantic. He is also the author of The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, I wish I had had you at my side last night as we were trying to understand what exactly happened in Iowa, especially with evangelicals. And your writing on this is so, so essential and so, you know, really to the point that we all want to try and make, which is the way Trump has corrupted the evangelical movement. I wonder, in your estimation, what it means to be an evangelical in this country at this moment. You know, it's funny, Alex, um, there's this anecdote where uh, a a few decades ago, there was someone who had written in a book that uh, an evangelical was just uh, anybody who uh, liked Billy Graham and uh, followed Billy Graham. And then someone asked Graham about that, and they asked him what he thought it meant to be an evangelical. And he said, you know, that's funny. I'd actually like to know the answer to that myself. And at the risk of being, you know, cute or reductive here, I mean, we, we are beginning to flirt with this territory where, definitionally speaking, evangelicalism has far more to do, at least in the perception of the, the greater public, with political engagement, partisan political identification than it does with any particular theology or any real religious conviction. And if you take it a step further, if you look at the exit polling, if you look at some of the social science around this, if you look at the fact, Alex, that during Donald Trump's presidency, more and more of Donald Trump's supporters were self-identifying as evangelicals, even though they were simultaneously attending church less and less often, I think one might reach the uncomfortable conclusion that perhaps the best definition now for what it means to be an evangelical is to be a conservative white Republican Trump supporter. And that is that is a tragedy on any number of different levels, but I think most profoundly it is a tragedy for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, right. If the gospel is no longer part of the equation, what is it replaced by? And that sort of leads to my next question, which is, do you think MAGAism has become a placeholder for a certain kind of 
religion. Well, yes. I mean, if you think about what it means to be religious, if you think about what it means to have uh, an identity rooted in an unshakable faith, uh, you know, again, I I don't want to be reductive here and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. Again, the evangelical community is is large, it's huge, and and it's complicated, and, and there's a lot of texture here to explore. But what we're seeing time and again, and and, I mean, 53% in Iowa, I mean, this is, this is now, we're, we're reaching a place where we're being confronted with some uncomfortable realities about what it means to be a part of the evangelical movement. And, and frankly, uh, where the line blurs between sort of religious identity and political identity. And is there a merging of the two? And, and frankly, I think that there's always a danger in politics, whatever side of the political aisle you're on, of, of sort of uh, turning political conviction into religious conviction or, or worshiping at a certain altar that is not an altar to God, but is an altar to political idolatry or to political identity. That, that is a danger that's always been there, but it is, I think, uniquely dangerous in this moment. And to be clear, as I write about in the book, we have examples from the not-so-distant past of a, a, a sort of political religion, or at least a civil religion, supplanting, competing with actual religion. And I don't think that we're all that far removed from that in this country now, looking at just what happened last night in Iowa. Well, yeah, and it's clear that Trump wants to capitalize on the sort of religious fervor that may undergird some people's support of him. I mean, he's out there taking out ads, the God Made Trump video, where they literally, in the video, call Trump right. a shepherd to mankind. I mean, he's not shying away from this. You know, for I've been to a number of Trump rallies, Tim, um, as a journalist, and I think the thing that people miss about Trump, Trumpism and MAGAism is the, the sense of belonging that is so fundamental to the entire MAGA movement. The, the, the Trump, you know, in addition to being xenophobic, racist events, they are also much like revivals. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of there's a shared sense of belonging. And it seems to me that that answers a certain like fundamental loneliness that may be part of the American experience in the 21st century. Not to get too theoretical about it, but I think that that probably dovetails with some of the, you know, sort of religious inclinations here. No, I, Alex, I, listen, you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head. I, when you think about the, the shared identity, the, 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 the common, you know, you described it as a sense of belonging. And, and I think that that's right. And when you think about, you know, why people gather in a religious setting, it is because they are part of one body. And, and as a part of that body, they are, they are sort of transcending the world around them and they are coming together to worship, uh, a, a God that is bigger than them. And in the evangelical tradition, in the Christian tradition, you know, that, that is to worship Jesus and to draw closer to Jesus and to become more and more Christ-like. That, that is the, the essence of, of that particular religious experience. And it is, 
you know, it's not an exaggeration when you go to these Trump rallies to talk to, with folks like the one that you just quoted from that article, and they are describing it in eerily similar terms, that it is a sort of transcendent religious experience that is rooted in notions of shared identity, and, and they are very much coming there to pursue a sort of salvation. It may not be a biblical salvation, but it is a salvation that's rooted in this same sense of, uh, of, you know, something that they can't find anywhere else. And they're coming back for it time and time again. And just, I would note quickly, Alex, if, if during Barack Obama's presidency or while he was running for president, uh, if, if you had heard, uh, him talking with or promoting a video saying that he was a shepherd to all of mankind, the evangelical movement would have been up in arms. I mean, this is, this is, this is heretical. This is blasphemous. And yet, Donald Trump seems to get a pass time and time again for doing these things that no other politician, Republican or Democrat, frankly, would get a pass for doing. And we should ask ourselves why. If not, if the answer does not at least start to flirt with this terrain of civil religion or political religion, then I think that we're not being honest with ourselves. And if we are being honest with ourselves, if we are willing to engage with the very uncomfortable topic around what happens when Trumpism becomes civil religion, in this country for millions and millions of people and what that might imply moving forward, uh, then we are doing a disservice to our, our pluralistic democracy. Tim, you, I really think you're one of the, the, the most, the most well-informed thinkers and writers on this topic. I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of your time and your writing. Thanks. Thanks again. Thanks, Alex. Coming up, do you remember Vivek Ramaswamy's infamous P-tape? Really, it, it exists. And now that he's out of the race, we're going to have a refresher on the also rounds greatest hits. That is coming up. Stay with us. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I've been a federal prosecutor, uh, so I love the courtroom. I make closing arguments. I may have done something really bad. Um, if you're elected president, will you promise to pardon me? Um, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, would you just promise me? I can endorse you right now. <laughs> I'm uh, endorsing Asa uh, for president, everybody. Give a round of applause. This is great. Yeah, I got you. know me, dude. You know me, okay? That is what the last few days in Iowa have been like for presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson. Just minutes after that, Governor Hutchinson fully lost control of that event as he was mobbed by even more provocateurs, including a man in a giant carrot suit 
imploring people to go vegan. That's what happens when Asa Hutchinson is on the campaign trail. All of this probably would have made for bigger Iowa campaign news had anyone remembered that Asa Hutchinson was actually running for president. Even some of Asa Hutchinson's supporters in Iowa had forgotten about him. Just a week before the caucuses, Governor Hutchinson told The Washington Post, I knocked on a door today and an Iowa voter said they loved me. Then they said, who are you going to support? And I said, I'm still running. Moments like that are probably part of the reason Asa Hutchinson announced today that he is suspending his campaign. That news comes less than 24 hours after the exit of another candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, who announced last night that he was dropping out and endorsing Donald Trump. Unlike Hutchinson, Ramaswamy's campaign was, at the very least, memorable. It was hard to ignore a guy who campaigned as a anti-woke crusader despite going to grad school on a Soros family-funded diversity scholarship, a man who wanted to end birthright citizenship for undocumented immigrants despite being the child of immigrants himself. Ramaswamy's most memorable campaign moments mostly came on the debate stage where you could literally feel the contempt the other candidates had for him through the television set. But he had some choice moments off the debate stage as well, like the time he forgot to mute himself while peeing during a live audio session with Elon Musk, or the time he got a cease and desist letter from Eminem for this thing. Back to the lab and begin your open soul rhapsody. Better go capture this moment and hope it don't catch you. Lose yourself in the music the moment you own it. Does he own it? With the exit of Mr. Ramaswamy and Governor Hutchinson, there are just three major candidates left. And there is one candidate among them who feels like the odds on favorite to drop out next. Nothing's going to stop us. Uh, real quick, before we get started, thank you, everyone. Governor DeSantis, I want to present to you this participation trophy. <laughs> now, probably not going to win the election, right? But we're proud of you for trying. There you go. Sorry, buddy. He's special, he's unique, and he's our little snowflake. See the way security just pulls him off the stage? That was the same group of pranksters who took over Governor Hutchinson's campaign just days before, which, I don't know, might be a sign. Remember that it was only a year ago that polls were showing a tightly contested race between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. But in that year, DeSantis's campaign has basically imploded. That is due in part to Trump's relentless attacks against DeSantis, but it is also due to DeSantis's inescapable awkwardness. This is Elaine Godfrey in The Atlantic. The governor lacks personal warmth and much capacity for small talk. He is seemingly unable to stand naturally. His hands are always slightly raised, as though he is wearing too many layers, like Randy in A Christmas Story. DeSantis has an unsettling habit of licking his lips when he speaks, and his smile never quite reaches his eyes, which seem full of terror. With a distant second place finish in Iowa, DeSantis's future is very much a, a question mark. And at this point, it feels like this thing is coming down to just two candidates. I'll talk about where Donald Trump and Nikki Haley go from here coming up next. It is officially time for everyone to start talking about the Granite State as the New Hampshire 
as New Hampshire gets ready to host the first Republican primary next week. And, and while there are three candidates formally left in this race, polls suggest that it's really a matchup between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. And that doesn't mean you are likely to see the two people in the same room at the same time, though. ABC News tonight canceled its scheduled New Hampshire debate after Governor Haley said she would not show up unless Donald Trump did, too. So now it's up to New Hampshire voters to decide. And here's what some of them told my colleague, Katie Chur. So who do you want to vote for? I want to vote for Nikki Haley. Yeah. Why? Partly because I don't want Trump to win. If I had to choose, probably Nikki Haley. Really? Why? Just, I think it's time that we had a woman in office, and I like her beliefs. I think Nikki Haley has more of a shot of beating Joe Biden because she's going to pull some of those moderates out. I like Nikki Haley. Why? I think she's got fresh ideas, and I think she can get elected. I'm not sure if Trump even wins. There are some uh, problems with Nikki Haley, but I do trust her as uh, kind of a better alternative. Joining me now is Sam Stein, Deputy Managing Editor for Politics at Politico. Sam, my buddy, it is good to see you. Thank you for making the time. Um, of course. What's your read on Haley's decision not to do this debate on Thursday? It's predictable. I've, I don't. You probably watched the last one with her and Ron DeSantis. Um, I don't know how many times uh, we were reminded of uh, the website rondesantislies.com. What if we forget, Sam? Who's going to remind us? I was, I was a little bit worried about that, honestly. I, I, I don't know if I, I will live without knowing that URL. So hopefully it's ingrained in my memory. Um, but yeah, I mean, the point here is that that debate really didn't do much uh, for her or for DeSantis, really. It was just to them kind of uh, volleying opposition research at each other for two hours and accusing each other of being despicable human beings. And that's not what she needs to do right now. What she needs to do right now is not get in the gutter with DeSantis. She needs to create a two-person race with Donald Trump, which is why when she finished third in Iowa, she said, we've just created a, a two-person race, even though she finished uh, third. Um, but she wants that contrast and putting herself on a stage with uh, the other candidate, not named Trump, who's still in the race, doesn't do it. Yeah. What's ironic to me is if Donald Trump actually did want to attend the debate, it's an open question about right. whether it would even be a good thing for Nikki Haley, because this is someone who's almost categorically refused to take on Donald Trump in any meaningful way, which begs the question, why run against Donald Trump if you're not actually running right. against Donald Trump? I feel like a two man, two person race, I should say, is maybe the worst thing for the Haley candidacy in, in a sort of practical, practically speaking. Right. I mean, New Hampshire is unique, though, right? Like, New Hampshire does have this core of independent-minded Republicans. In fact, up until October, if you were a Democrat in the state, you could register, uh, switch your registration to vote in the Republican primary. And I'm sure a lot, uh, thousands of them did uh, to vote for Chris Christie. They could be up for grabs for Nikki Haley. In New Hampshire specifically, uh, I think, and I wouldn't be surprised if she were to go harder at Trump uh, on some of his vulnerabilities, uh, much harder than she has so far. To your point, she hasn't really. Uh, you know, and this is sort of, eventually we'll get to the point where we really do have retrospectives about this, about whether it was uh, a smart or foolish idea uh, for the other candidates in the race to just assume that, uh, to not go after Trump on his legal issues, on some of his other vulnerabilities, hoping that he would kind of wither or that it would be a one or two person race uh, alongside with him, Haley made that bet just like everyone else except for Christie and Asa Hutchinson. I guess she could say, well, look, I got this far and they didn't. But uh, at some point, you do have to go against the front runner. And the question now is, you know, if she does it in New Hampshire, she does it successfully. Can she do it anywhere else? And I think, Alex, to your point is valid, which is I don't know if she can. Well, and it does sort of I mean, 
It does beg the question of how artful a politician Nikki Haley truly is. I mean, she's artful insofar as she's gotten this far without actually outwardly, deeply criticizing Donald Trump and retaining her some version of good standing within the Republican Party and appealing to moderates. She's trying to be everything to everyone. But Mark Leibovich writes in The Atlantic that the more you listen to Nikki Haley, the mushier her message gets. I, 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 I need not remind you of her comments about the Civil War not being based over, not being fought over the issue of slavery. On Fox and Friends this morning, she said, America has never been a racist country. I'm surprised, Sam, that in the head-to-head matchups between Haley and Biden, she continues to, to beat Biden by a very healthy margin given the the real sort of fundamental reality of her campaign setting aside all the Trump stuff. Right. Well, I mean, some of that just may be Biden's current state of weakness, right? He, he's, his, his approval rating is just abysmal, frankly, historically bad. Uh, it doesn't mean it can't get better, but he's not doing well uh, in relation to all the candidates. Uh, he's doing worse against Haley in these polls. Um, I would say, you know, there's some... I think she's, maybe I'm going against the grain here, but like there's obviously some skill level to her, right? She's the daughter of uh, Indian American immigrants in South Carolina. Uh, A female in that state to get elected governor takes some skill, especially when she was not the favorite candidate in that race. Um, But I think Mark's point is also valid, which is that she has the ability to morph to the political times of the moment. You know, she was a Tea Partier, then she was a Trumper. Or before that, she was uh, a Trump critic, then she was in the Trump cabinet. She, of course, left uh, and said she was not, uh, uh, she was critical of January 6th, then said she wasn't going to primary Trump, decided to primary Trump, and now suddenly has become the moderate. Some of that may be that the Overton window is, is shifted for us, right? The Republican moderate today is very different than a Republican moderate 10 years ago. But some of that just has to do with her you know, her ability to to go with the tides of the political moment. Um, what does that mean if she were to make it through somehow to the general election? I think it makes her formidable to a degree, but it also creates these vulnerabilities, right? Like you could see a, a, a campaign against her where it's like, what does she actually, what are her actual core beliefs? How could she serve with Trump? Say she wasn't going to run against him, then run against him. I mean, how close does she associate herself with that uh, MAGA brand, and why didn't she criticize Trump uh, for his legal issues during the general elections? Those are very potent attacks against her, uh, but I do think she has some skills as a politician. Nikki Haley, the person Donald Trump said is a globalist because she likes globes. I don't know whether that counts as a, as a criticism or a compliment. Or, it's a good shape, the globe. Sam Stein, my friend, thank you for your wisdom, uh, as always. Of course. When we come back, a significant number of Iowa caucus goers said they would not support Donald Trump if he is convicted of a crime. But if Trump's lawyers get their way, voters will never have the chance to put that to the test. We'll have more on Trump's legal dramas just ahead. Yesterday, in an NBC News entrance poll, Iowa caucus caucus goers were asked if Trump is convicted, is he fit to be president? 65 percent yes, but 31 percent said no. Now, whether or not that question will be put to the test is very much up in the air. Donald Trump's comically busy calendar has a number of potential court dates. We are still awaiting rulings that may affect the March 4th date of his federal election interference case in D.C. And the Mar-a-Lago case down in Florida may be the simplest case to try before the election. But some recent developments there have us all wondering what the judge is doing exactly and what it all means for Trump's scheduled May 20th trial date. 
Tonight, Trump's attorneys filed a 68-page motion, 68 pages, that has the potential to cause delay if Judge Cannon agrees with them. In the filing that was just put up hours an hour ago, they accused special counsel Jack Smith's office of colluding with the Biden White House. And on that basis, they are seeking a whole bunch of material saying the special counsel's office is seeking to avert its eyes from exculpatory, discoverable evidence in the hands of senior officials at the White House, DOJ, and FBI, who provided guidance and assistance as this lawless mission proceeded. The court should conduct fact-finding on any disputed facts relating to the scope of the prosecution team, enter an order resolving the party's dispute on that issue, and order the special counsel's office to produce the requested discovery. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, thanks for being here. I literally just got this motion a minute ago, so I haven't had a a chance to review it. But it sounds like Trump's lawyers want to greatly expand the the number of people and the, the agencies that are deemed prosecution team in terms of the special counsel's office. Is that right? That's right. This is a sort of fantastical narrative of Trump as the victim done wrong by a weaponized executive branch that's out to get him. And so for starters, what he's saying, and and this is an argument that there's debate back and forth about in Discovery, to be frank, but he's saying that the prosecution limited the scope of their search for material they had to turn over to Trump far too narrowly. They want, for instance, the special counsel's office to go back to people in the Justice Department and the FBI. And perhaps that's warranted. You know, this is an 11th Circuit case, and the law in the 11th Circuit says that prosecutors have to talk to any agents who they worked closely with. That's the essence of the requirement. But then parts of this, other parts, are just completely out of bounds. They want the special counsel to go and work with the entire intelligence community to turn over everything in the intelligence community's possession that touches on anything to do with this. So I think the safe thing to say here is that we should wait for Jack Smith's response, which will undoubtedly be pretty harsh, given what the defense is requesting here. This seems more than anything like a bit of theater to just delay this case. Would you say that's accurate? I mean, the idea that somehow the prosecutorial team extends to the entire intelligence community, the Secret Service and the White House is like, in a word, crazy, Joyce. But the question is, how seriously does Judge Cannon take something like this? And that's the problem here, because Judge Cannon has never hesitated to put her thumb on the scales of justice for Trump. She's delayed this case to the point where it's really uh, less and less clear that it's still even possible to try this case and get a verdict before the election. Now she's presented with the opportunity to delay things even further. And there are also questions about classified discovery. This could be where that May trial date goes off the rails. It also sounds like in this filing, again, 68 pages, that um, President Trump is going to dispute at trial the contention from the special special counsel's office that Mar-a-Lago was not secure and that there was a risk material stored at those premises could not be compromised. Joyce, I'm old enough to remember when we saw pictures of um, top secret or classified government documents being stored in a bathroom. Um, It doesn't seem like a stretch to say the storage of these documents at Mar-a-Lago was not secure, but somehow Trump's team intends to argue that? 
It's not and it's not a defense. Trump wasn't entitled to possess classified material game over. It doesn't matter if he kept it in his bathroom, his ballroom, or if he had built himself a skiff and sent it there. He simply was not entitled to have this in the possession and perhaps more importantly, the obstruction of the investigation that was an effort to reclaim it. Those are criminal acts. End of story. It sounds to me, Joyce, that you're not very bullish on this uh, trial getting underway before the summer or even potentially the election. Does it seem to you like the best hope for a federal case, a federal trial, is the Washington, D.C. election interference case? So that all depends on the judge, on Eileen Cannon. The Mar-a-Lago case, the classified documents case, is not as complicated in many ways as the January 6th case, even though there are multiple defendants. Discovery could be completed in a couple of weeks. The case could be set for trial, and it could go on that May date. But it depends on whether Eileen Cannon wants it to or not. Joyce Vance, always good to talk with you, especially as we have this big breaking legal news. Thank you for your time, Joyce. That is our show for tonight. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Extra, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.